You're listening to The Over 50 Entrepreneur, the podcast that's dedicated to the business builders who are only getting started when most are winding down. This is the place to discover how to create more freedom from your business while growing the value of your business. Now here's your host, Rick Hadrava. Hey guys, it's Rick Hadrava again, and you're listening to another episode of the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. Listen, you know, we all get into community involvement for one reason or another, and um, I have to tell you, there's nothing better than contributing to your community and helping support the great causes that are out there. And one of those causes that I was fortunate enough to be a part of for a long time was the Alzheimer's Association here in Oklahoma City, sat on the board, and it was really through that involvement that I got to know today's guest, uh, Jim Holman. And I just have to tell you, he is one of the funniest, uh, most engaging people that I've met in Oklahoma City. I've been fortunate to get to spend some time with him um, in group settings in one-on-one. And I'm just so excited to have him on our podcast today. Um, He's been a long time car dealer uh, working in that space. He, he is just full of knowledge, and I think what's most exciting um, is that even today he is passionate about the industry as he looks forward to what the next chapter of his career looks like. So without further ado, I want to just welcome to the studios here, uh, the Epic Studios, uh, my friend, Mr. Jim Holman. Jim, thank you for being here today. And thank you, Rick, for for letting me uh, come and and be a part of a podcast. Uh, I'm not only a, a participant today, but I'm a an avid listener. I believe I'm current and listening to everyone that that you broadcast. So this is kind of cool. <laughs> well, we appreciate that, and um, I'll make sure to give you another cup of coffee later as a as a thank you. Hey, so why don't you share with us? Let's let's get started with why the car industry and and where that started for you in your career well it started uh uh i was a a young kid in college and uh had done some things and saved up some money and in those days the coolest car you could have was a corvette so i I went down and ordered a corvette but it took about six months to get them and uh uh, and i had the money but uh i saved up so that wasn't an issue and uh so I kept going down to visit the guys at the dealership waiting on this car to arrive. And one thing led to another. And, and the next thing you know, I want to make it a career, I guess. <laughs> well, and that was while you were in college? Yes. Okay. So interesting. Um, you studied economics in college. Right. When you got done with college, you ch- what, what was it that, that led you to continue down that career? Well, I had gotten to know it, it, this was in in my hometown of Altus, Oklahoma and I'd gotten to know the 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 family obviously it's a small town we all knew each other and and I knew the family that owned it and one of them had uh of the family members had started in Arizona and California so I graduated from college went to Tucson and became uh, a career autom- automobile guy and uh, 50 years later uh, I'm retired for the moment so how long were you out in Arizona then? I stayed a couple years, and, and this was, for those people that remember this, the oil embargo hit, and Arizona was particularly devastated. And the uh, everything I read in the Wall Street Journal in those days said, uh, the only place to live in America is Dallas, Texas. So on, just on a whim, I took off and went to Dallas. 
<laughs> so, um, did you have a family at that time, or uh, single? Or? I was uh, newly married and uh, no family other than just we were just newlyweds in, in our twenties, and uh, uh, I, I w- walked into this. Cadillac dealership and I said I wanted a job selling cars and in those days they could do this they said no uh, you're too young our customers wouldn't want to talk to a kid about buying a Cadillac I said okay thank you and about a, about a month later they called me and they said we're looking at your resume and you have leasing experience and I said yes and they said well we've got a leasing project that we really don't know much about come and talk to us so I did and then they took me they they liked what I said I guess and we went over and went up to the uh top floor of this building on Stimmons Freeway in Dallas and in walks this four foot ten blonde woman who I had never heard of and sticks out her hand and says hi I'm Mary Kay Ash and uh, the pink Cadillac program came from that meeting it came from that meeting and that was a key account for you it it was uh, we did about three hundred pink Cadillacs and drop shipped them which means we would order them at one dealership but drop ship them to or shipped them into other dealerships around the country. About five came into the Dallas dealership, so it was an intense. Uh, uh, and and this was pre-computerization, so uh, it, it we had to keep records by hand. It was an intense, a lot of moving parts program, but a lot of fun. What what did you learn out of that experience? Because that's pre- I mean, you're talking, you're going niche in the Cadillac space if you're dealing with Mary Kay. Right. Well, I mean, it, this was a large dealership, and I ultimately became, the, I never owned it, but ultimately became the general manager, and the dealer was, was uh, absentee, so I ran the store for a number of years. But it, it was uh, in high, you know, once I got familiar with how the account worked over time, I handed that baton off to somebody else, but I was always in case of emergency, break the glass. So we, we stayed close. <laughs> we kept our hand, finger on the pulse, you might say. But but anyway, that's kind of what launched me in from small-time dealership things to like, okay, this automobile business has some really uh, long-reaching uh, uh, fingers that, that can get into more of a big business environment. And, and, you know, you bring up a good point. What What is the difference? Because there's so many small dealers even today, uh, I, I have a really good friend in Arkansas, and he's, he's just a small independent dealer. What What is the difference between a small dealer and somebody with a more national or regional footprint? I, I suppose the answer to that would be, because I've been both, and I suppose the answer to that would be uh, capital. Okay. I mean, uh, your ability to expand in both on timeline as well as size is a function of how much capital you have available. A publicly traded company like some of these really large uh, dealer organizations, biggest one we know in Oklahoma City would be Group One, which is the Bob Howard stores. But uh, they, uh, they've got so much capital that they can expand and, and their target has been to go into major markets and buy the best dealers. And uh, so it's, it, the growth is both quick and exponential simultaneously but is it really just a mindset of the person on uh, you know do they want to stay small or do they want to go bigger well, and scale that when when I became when I got out of that and got into a small independent environment I always defined it in my own mind is you have to control your growth how big do you want to be assuming you had all the capital you want do you want to be that big because 
there are lots of people. Uh, at the time when I ran a publicly traded dealership group, I had 2,200 employees. I mean, technically, I right. obviously had lots of help. But, but the point is, that was not a sustainable deal for me. It's too much energy. It's all the time. And, and you know, it, you lose your balance. Or if, To me, I had to have some balance for some downtime, do something besides sell cars. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so at 25, you actually moved from simply being car salesman, we'll say, mm-hmm. to actually becoming a Pontiac Buick dealer. I did. How did you? How did that transform, and, and what happened there? Well, I uh, Automotive News, which was then and still is sort of the main crane publication, main uh, periodical for, for the automobile retail automobile industry, used to have dealerships run in a classified section, just, you know, just like if you're trying to find a dog or something back in the day. And, and so I found this little dealership, and it turned out the guy that was wanting to retire, and uh, the numbers were so low in those days that uh, it, it, it was, I bought the dealership. And, and uh, it was a great learning experience. I was undercapitalized. I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't have any business running and owning a dealership at 25 years old with my lack of experience. But, uh, man, did it help me all the rest of my life. I sold it. Well, it's one of those deals where I sold it and walked away with virtually no loss and no gain. And, uh, and so, a whole lot of education. And a lot of education. The gain was the education. So, so let's, let's go back to that. If you, were, if you were 25 again, staring that opportunity in the face... Um, a, would you take it on? And B, what would you maybe do differently? Um, you know, what? It, so ultimately, what did you learn from that experience? Well, if I was 25 again, but not still 25 uh, stupid. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> to the, I'm sorry yes. to those younger people that heard me say that out loud. But if I had the knowledge that I do now, I'd walk away from it. I wouldn't do it. Okay. Uh, if I, but, you know. Why, that, why would that be the case? Because to structure a business properly, there are certain bases you got to touch as you go around, and I didn't, I didn't know that. So, and what would, and, and then maybe there was some, maybe there was some uh, uh, that was okay because I didn't know what I didn't know, and maybe that that probably gave me some uh, fearlessness that I would have if I'd had time to to vet it and study the performance and all that, I'd, I'd run for cover. So I don't know. So that's, what that's, would some of those basic things be? Well, here's the thing that the automobile business does, and I've been told by friends and other businesses, oh, you don't have that so- sewed up. We do it too. But the automobile business rewards people for selling cars. And it's easy to rise all the way to the top of a dealership, uh, general manager or upper man- senior management of dealership, and never really understand how to run the business, which is cash flow. Right. It's what we all talk about in business. And some of us really know what it means. And it's amazing to me how many car dealers and car dealer groups I've been in where you can tell by the way the conversation goes that an individual considers cash flow and profit to be the same thing. And, uh, you know, when you when the average uh, piece of equipment that you sell is $20,000, dollars $50,000, and you sell eight or ten of those and have to go pay for them before you collect all the money, uh, 
cash flow can be, get real meaningful in the car business. And, they, and that and that only happens on, on payroll days, by the way. Do, do you think that that um, takes down a lot of small dealers or Absolutely. inexperienced? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that and coupled with one other thing, Rick, money has been easy to borrow, especially in the automobile uh, space. And money's been easy to borrow so they can over-borrow, over-leverage, and then they have cash flow issues just based on the natural course of business. And it's, it can be, the dam can break. And it does. It does. It does. Well, I appreciate that. That's good stuff. So from here, we transition, um, and I'm going to skip a few things that we talked about, but you got recruited to Amarillo, um, and I believe it was cross-continent auto retailers? Not in the beginning, but it's what it became. Okay. Uh, so I'm uh, running this Cadillac store, and, and uh, times are really good. And, uh, uh, and then in 1986, Cadillac changed their car from a big car to a little car. And I'm telling you, we used to say if we showed up for business, if you showed up for work in the Cadillac business, you'd sell cars. It, they were that popular. And we figured out how to make it exactly the opposite, you know. So it's one of those times when you're looking and thinking, and then these, some people I knew said, come to Amarillo. And I said, where is that? After you fall off the end of the earth? And they, and they said, oh, that's real funny, you know. So I go out there, and it was, what, Rick, <laughs> what an opportunity. So we had three dealerships in that town and one in Canyon, which is 20 miles south of Amarillo. So we had four stores. Uh, Chevrolet and Nissan, and uh, the owner of the company uh, was approached about joining in the United Auto Group doing an IPO, and United Auto Group's still in business today. Sid DeBoer out of Arkansas did that, but and he he was sitting in my office one day. I was running a Chevrolet dealership for him, and he says, you know, we could get we could sell seventy percent of the dealerships. For, I don't remember it's millions of dollars. And I said, well, Bill, you got to do that. He said, no, I believe we ought to do it ourselves. And so we did an IPO, beat UAW out, went public in September of 1996. And uh, <laughs> wow. Well, going public is a whole different ball game. So uh, what, what experience did you walk away from that? Well, um, it, first of all, we had a lot of Morgan Stanley uh uh, investment bankers out of New York that would come out to Amarillo and they would just stand there and look around with their <laughs> eyes open and their mouth open and they would say, can we drive a pickup? <laughs> I mean, these guys didn't even have cars. They lived in New York. and it, So there was a cultural thing. But uh, uh, I think for those of us that were running the company, that we we had to quickly understand, learn, and and deliver on maintaining a balance between the people and Wall Street for lack of, a, of an oversimplification. And the people we would define in two categories, the employees and the customers. Neither one of them wanted to know about Wall Street. And yet we had to go have these, we had to have these quarterly phone calls and make it and, and do these uh, uh, earnings estimates. And if we missed the earnings estimate, you know, the world, was, you look up and troops are marching on the horizon. You know, it was just, it was, we were car salesmen for crying out loud. It was, it was an interesting time. Well, I'm somebody that's been part of the IPO process and seen it work. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. What happened to your participation with that group once the IPO went 
What's the company? Well, I started, I ran operations and we had dealerships. When we finally got to what I would call cruise altitude, we had uh, uh, dealerships in San Diego, Las Vegas and Henderson, Denver, Amarillo and Oklahoma City. And we had a problematic store in uh, here in Oklahoma City. And so I came over here after three or four unsuccessful operators. I I started, uh, I got an apartment in Oklahoma City and I was back and forth a lot. And I took the store over and ran it. And, and and ultimately, Group One, who, who was Huizinga, uh, deal uh, approached us, and in January of two thousand, we sold. But we were we were yes, we were small cap, but we were big board. Most of those guys have been on uh, the Nasdaq, but we were on the New York Stock Exchange, and it was cool. Yeah, I imagine it was. Well, I, you know, I'm looking through here, and you came back to Oklahoma, uh, and I. Did you own Lynn Hickey Dodge? The, the Cross Continent did. Yes. Okay. And then. Um, and Lynn Hickey was our problematic store. And so I came and ran that store. And that's the one that you ran. I got you. Mm-hmm. And then you started to acquire other car stores. Was that pro- prominently here in Oklahoma? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we. It, it, when, when, uh, when Cross Continent sold. I talked to uh, the Group One guys, and uh, you know it, it, the chemistry wasn't there, and it meant another move. It would have meant what they wanted me to do is move back to Dallas, and you know it just it thought okay, this is the time to make a change, and so uh, we stayed here and started buying small dealerships and uh, just doing our own thing. It wasn't nearly it wasn't the scale that we were accustomed to, but that was okay. So, I was going to say, and sometimes that's fine. No, it was very okay. Right. Yeah. I think some, and that's the one thing, big for big sake isn't necessarily always profitable um, and, and doesn't always mesh with what we're passionate about or the mission that we're trying, you right. know, that journey that we're on. And so uh, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I think knowing you, you enjoyed the small as much as you, it was just a size mm-hmm. difference. No question about that. Yeah, it's you just have to decide what you want to do. Absolutely. And sometimes it changes as you go through your life. So let's talk about change because anyone listening hopefully is getting the idea that you've kind of been around the block a while, right? Is it, I think that's code for saying I'm old. Well, uh, I, I like <laughs> yes, to think I that have. you're the perfect over 50 entrepreneur. Yes, I have been around the block and uh, stayed in the automobile business because I, I, I absolutely love it. I mean, I'm one of those guys that's probably – Cut me, I believe gasoline. I mean, you know, I don't know. It's it's just, it's it's been a wonderful uh, place for me to be. Uh, you know, I still, I still, I still think about it every day. So let me ask you this: If you weren't doing cars, you're you're a very entrepreneurial guy. Is there something else that, as you look back and say, you know what, this is what I would have done if I hadn't been passionate about the auto industry? Uh, I had a very good friend. He passed away. And, last May, who was the uh, patriarch of a media company. And I used to tell him, if I'd have known that you could sell air for the, for the kind of money you've sold it for, I wouldn't have worried about metal. So <laughs> per, perhaps maybe broadcasting, I don't know. Uh, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda doesn't work well. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Okay. I would have found something. So then let, let's go this direction. What advice would you give um, to that younger person today that wants to get, you know, a dealership off the ground or get in the car industry, what, what in, you know, based on your experience, what would you tell them? I'd probably 
recommend that, or not probably, I would recommend that they get some background before they just take off and do it. But I mean, go to work for an organization that's got a good reputation, uh, both as a place to work as well as a place to buy a car, and and see if you can move through some of the major positions. Maybe it's a two or three year graduate school, assuming it's it's an after college decision. Uh, but try to understand the business. But I would interview whomever I was going to go to work for. And if they're not willing to teach you how to run the business, if it's all about selling cars and numbers and nothing else, I'd probably move to the next window. Yeah. You know, I, I'd look for somebody that could educate me uh, as well as pay me uh, some wages. Obviously, you got to pay rent and buy groceries. But uh, before I put my money borrowed or saved or wherever I might have it into business, I'd probably want to vet it a little bit and know a little bit about what to expect. You're not going to learn it all, but right. a lot of what we learn is by mistakes. We all know that. So, well, And I got to guess, you know, you kind of alluded to this, but understanding the numbers and, and how the numbers work and where to find them, probably really important as well. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any way around that. So, you know, you're going into kind of your next journey, your next chapter, if you will, so I'm curious, one of the questions I always like to ask is, as an entrepreneur, Jim, what, what is freedom for you? As an entrepreneur, I'm going to answer it this way, if I may, Rick. I, I don't know that I get beyond, I don't know if I'm capable of getting beyond the automobile business. So let me use, let me stay in, within that, that, the confines of, of that. As long as I have a business model that I can have fun executing and sell for a price point that I can make a reasonable return simultaneously the, the market the niche the group of customers however you define them that I'm serving find a high value and they like to do business with me that's freedom if I'm fretting about losing customers because I probably am not doing something right or if I'm fretting about gaining customers because nobody knows what I'm doing I don't feel very free so if my model serves my market and we all like it i'm i'm free as a bird that's great because it lets you continue to drive towards what you're what you're good at and 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 don't you think i do so i'm saying i'm not really asking the questions much i'm making a statement there's too much commoditization in this in this world so i want my model to decommoditize what what we do in the car business is very commoditized in in many respects so is that you know, we talk about unique client experience a lot in the in the work we do with entrepreneurs, um, and and what we find is, you know, John Warlow likes to say, customer service. Nobody buys your company because you have great customer service. There's a level of expectation there. Um, so, how much of what you do in your dealership has to go around the focus on the client and and delivering that experience for them? I remember years ago, and this always was sort of the thing that whispered in my ear, and I'm coming back to hopefully answer the question, but I remember that I'm driving down this when I lived in Dallas. I was in traffic, which you spend a lot of time doing Yes, that. you do. And I was in traffic, and I was listening to a business radio station that I listened to every morning. And they were talking. The subject discussion was, what do you do or don't do that loses customers? And whomever was talking, I don't even remember the name, said, well, all the time, 50 to 60 percent, 
and this is a long time ago, so I don't know if these numbers apply. This is what bothered me, kept me thinking. 50 to 60% of our customers are unhappy with us. And 85% of that group will never tell you. They're just looking for a place to move their their loyalty, to move their business. So I always tried to anticipate that. I remember I took a service manager that I was really upset with him because he just he his answers to any questions to me and I and I owned the dealership, much less the customers, were so cliche. And I was either gonna beat him to death or run him off or 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 get him back in track and I I I got in a, a a van and I pulled into the service drive and he said he came out and I said get in and <laughs> no explanation and drove down the street did a u-turn came back in and drove in the in the service drive and he's he's trying to anticipate what I'm doing and I said what do you see and I couldn't get an answer I got an answer I got a new service manager yeah. Because if we can't see what the customer is seeing, we're going to screw it up. Right, because to your point, they don't complain, they just leave. They just leave. Yeah. And that was always my fear. My biggest fear in business day to day was that one thing. I mean, I'm worried about cash too, we yeah. all do, but I, what, do, what am I doing wrong or not doing as well as I should that would make a big difference? That, that's great. We could go so far down that because the other part of that is, you know, if our team members, our employees, if they understand the value in that and the mission of the organization, um, that is a big component to the culture. Yes. And and you can quickly realize who's not on the on the team and, and who is. Well, you, see, I, I retired in 2017. I'm going to try to unretire soon. But anyway, I retired in 2017 and did some, I've done some consulting. I'm a very frustrated consultant because the number one problem for me that I've personally, I don't, I don't go any farther than my own experience, but what I hear often, and this is, this is to me very problematic for any business, automobile or otherwise, is that, well, we've kind of always done it that way. The wrong answer. Uh, and you just want to go <laughs> your business is falling off or it's, you know, or something that's not as positive or you're not growing or however you want to define it doesn't really matter. It's go, it points at the same problems. Well, talk a little bit. We're, we're coming towards the end of the show. Um, and you've, you said it, you're kind of reinventing yourself. Um, and, but it's still in the car dealership. Yeah. Well, talk briefly about that. So about, Three or four years ago, on a whim, I bought a Tesla. And I'm a car guy. Anything I own is for sale, and somebody tried, tried to buy it, and I let them. <laughs> <laughs> and I regret, you know, I never, in my entire career, I never had a car very long. I don't know what it's like to have your own stuff in the glove compartment because I drove cars that were always being sold. So, uh, it, uh, but anyway, it, it gave me some insight into electric vehicles, and I started kind of, paying attention to Elon Musk. I find him fascinating. And, uh, but here's the thing. In there right now, there's about a million-ish electric vehicles registered in the United States. 80% are in 14 uh, states. Oklahoma is not one of the 14, but I think electric vehicles are going to make uh, a footprint. Are they going to take over and, and, and no internal combustion cars? 
not in probably our lifetime. I don't see that happening. But what I do see, the big manufacturers are putting hundreds of billions of dollars into, into answering the Tesla competition. And, and I'm talking about Volkswagen, Toyota, General Motors, Ford, all the, guy, all the big guys. And uh, so the forecast in the United States is about 350,000 EVs, electric vehicles, will be sold new in the United States in 2020. And uh, uh, it's creating, the way you get used cars, Rick, is you sell them new, and then you wait a while. <laughs> That's the factory. The deliveries today are the used car factories for tomorrow. And so I see this factory making these used EVs, and nobody knows that business. New car dealers will be very slow to warm up. It's a different customer. He's more, uh, probably more product uh, familiar than perhaps the salespeople. Um, and I could go into long reasons why that is, but low volume does not interest salespeople that are paid on commission, just to cut to the chase. Why I don't want to wait on this electric car guy because he'll, you know. Yeah. That's the, so it's going to take. You got to go where the numbers gonna are take when you're in You got to go where the numbers yeah. are. And the, and the EV piece of new car stores will be slow to warm up, I think. Uh, so who's going to handle the users? So we see an opportunity. I've been fascinated with, uh, I think it's, there's a bank in uh, Edmund Bank. There's a bank in Edmund that's d doing this. Capital One has done bank cafes. They're changing banking as their advertising says, which what, what they're saying is we're putting a coffee bar in and putting a low, a low nice environment uh, into what used to be a bank lobby. Talking about Citizens Bank of Edmund, I think, Diane. is doing some of that Jill yeah. and the work she's doing. Right. Yeah. And I think that's cool. And, and I think that if we could take, do a boutique dealership to sell primarily electric vehicles, and there's no special license, so you can sell anything, but this is what we think we're going to do. We're going to do a boutique thing, sort of borrow the idea from the banking, put some coffee in there and put some charging stations in there. So you have an interaction with customers uh, that bought the EV from you or customers that didn't but need a place to charge. And charging places are going up all over town. That's getting popular. But uh, we see it as a niche. And uh, so that's kind of what we're thinking about doing. What I love is you, you take in your experience, you see a problem, and the truth is it's perfect for a small business entity to go out and solve that problem. And then you get to build uh, an organization around that? Well, uh, a couple things. One, you asked me the difference kind of between large and small a minute ago. We want to keep it boutique. We want to keep it yeah. small. We want to be able to know know uh, our, our clientele on, on as personal level as they want to be known. I mean, we're not going to be crazy about it, but, you know, it's it sort of is a different uh, approach uh, than the typical dealership where you walk in and here's the salespeople standing around waiting on you and uh, waiting for you to arrive and then sort of pounce on you. or Right. Uh, I love Bob, Bob Mills Furniture's shopper stalkers or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I, I love that sort of, we don't do that. But if we could sell a few uh, EVs, and, and then I think there's a, there is a, another thing that would appeal to us, and that would be to go talk to businesses. If you've got delivery trucks, cars, and the mileage fits a one-charge deal so you can charge them at night, the operation costs, Rick, are, are phenomenally 
less on EVs because you don't have any oil, you don't have any gasoline, you don't have any tune-ups, you don't have any, you know, you, you've got tires, you've got brakes, and that's about all that's the same. Everything else is battery. And battery life is uh, every day that technology improves. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes, and I can't wait to see that unfold for you, Jim. So, well, listen, this has been great. Um, you know, we, we I could spend even more time because I think there's a lot of topics and a lot of experience and knowledge that you bring. Um, if somebody wants to know, you know, how to learn more about you and what you're doing, how, how do they get in touch with you? Well, e- email, and I... I uh, I gave my email address to somebody the other day and said, oh, I haven't seen an AOL e- email address in 15 years. And I said, okay. <laughs> but it's still AOL. It's J.H. Holman. Okay. J-H-H-O-L-M-A-N at AOL.com. Don't you wish you still had those disks that they used to send in the mail, right? <laughs> like Absolutely. Throw those things away like hotcakes. Well, listen, you can also um, find Jim's email address on our website with our show notes. And uh, be sure to check out our website for this show and for resources um, for entrepreneurs. That's www.epicsbiz.com. Make sure to um, send me an email at rick at epicsbiz.com. We want to get some feedback from you, let you know, you know, let, let us know what's on your mind. And we appreciate you tuning in. And you've been listening to the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. I think today's guest is the epitome of that. And so I appreciate it. And until next time, remember, we're only getting started. The Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Epic Business Advisory, where we help entrepreneurs escape the owner's trap, build businesses that can succeed without you, allowing you the opportunity to realize more freedom, think bigger, and pursue next-level goals. Download our freedom formula at epicsbiz.com slash formula. And remember, we're only getting started.